Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. It's great to see you all today and thank you so much for coming in on such a clement weather. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with CIS, we are a public policy research organisation and uh, we're primarily committed to promoting the principles of classical liberalism. And our main areas of policy uh, niche, if you like, are economics, uh, education and culture. Um, but occasionally we weigh into the great debates over current affairs and uh, foreign affairs. And with that, we decided to host a discussion today on American politics. Now, I'm not one of those who indulges in hubris, but uh, I think it's fair to say nonetheless that uh, time difference means that we are the first think tank in the world <laughs> <laughs> to host an event on the midterm elections <laughs> in the universe. That's right, Warren. Uh, so thank you here for being a world first. <laughs> um, these elections were, as many of you know, were widely anticipated. Uh, we're all too often told that these are the most important elections in living memory. Um, we had 35 out of the 100 US Senate seats up for grab. Um, all of the 435 House seats were up for grab and something like 36 out of 50 gubernatorial elections. So these were races for governors and state legislative assemblies. Fair to say that the enthusiasm and turnout was high. I'm not entirely sure of the latest numbers, but it's almost on par with a presidential election, which is really quite extraordinary. Usually congressional turnouts are something like 30%. It's something like 45 to 50%. It even may go beyond 50. We'll find out in the next few hours. But that just demonstrates the extent to which the president has rallied his base, but he's also infuriated his opponents. <laughs> so the questions here today is, have the Democrats and their left-wing base, have they been so energised that they turn out en masse to vote and create a wave for the Democrats? Uh, has Donald Trump and his army, the silent majority, uh, delivered again for the president, even though Donald Trump, of course, is nowhere on today's ballots? Well, this is what we know so far. The Republicans, of course, they had a 20-seat majority in the House. The Democrats now control the House, but it's not by a large margin. It's only anywhere between five and 10-seat majority. Uh, it depends on California coming up. But that is, by historical standards, not huge. And moreover, uh, the Republicans have not only uh, retained control of the Senate, they've actually gained, at this stage at least, three Senate seats in Indiana, um, Missouri and I think it's South Dakota. So that's the look on the legislative front. It's pretty mixed. Now to discuss these matters we have a terrific panel. My first guest is Greg Sheridan. Now he's the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. He's a former Washington correspondent for that august publication. My former colleague at the Oz for many years. He's also a prolific uh, writer, author of many books, uh, not just on American foreign policy but the Asia-Pacific. And his most recent book, of course, was called uh, God is Good for You. And we had the pleasure of doing an event for that. Please join me in welcoming Greg Sheridan. <laughs> Sit there, Greg. April Parmalee is the chief executive of the American Chamber of Commerce uh, here in Australia. Uh, she's formerly worked at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And she's also worked in, in a high-level position in the U.S. State Department during the presidency of George W. Bush. April and I worked together uh, for about 18 months at the U.S. Study Centre. Please welcome April Parmalee. 
And finally, Bob Carr, of course, really needs no introduction, but I'll give him one. He's the former foreign minister in this country. He was also the premier of this great state from 1995 uh, to 2005. Uh, he is, for mine, one of the smartest, shrewdest observers of American history, especially the Civil War. Uh, these days, he's head of the Australia-China Research Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Carr. Greg, you might want to get that mic. Uh, Greg, I'll just start with you. First, your thoughts on what we know so far about the midterm elections. Well, Tom, uh, uh, look, thank you very much for inviting me here. What a joy it is. When Tom was my editor at The Australian, the opinion page editor, his knowledge of American politics was so encyclopedic that I didn't really have to do any fact-checking or anything, because he would always come to me and say, no, 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 it was the 7th district in Missouri, not the 8th, and the swing was 3.1%, not 3.2%, and John Bolton's birthday is on September. <laughs> but if you think that was bad enough, Bob Carr was my colleague back at the Bulletin magazine, and he was even more obsessive about American <laughs> politics than that, and uh, once invited me to give an address on Teddy Roosevelt and then skewered me for my ignorance, you know, and I've never, I've never recovered from the trauma. I have nothing bad to say about April, however. Look, um, my take on this election is it's absolutely normal. The world as we know it continues even under Donald Trump. It's a very good result for Trump overall. Uh, they get three seats in the Senate. They might lose one, so it'll be a net two, but it might be a net three. That's fantastic. I mean, the, the, I was a never-Trump conservative. I was in the kind of Brett Stevens, William Crystal category, never-Trump conservative. I still don't like Trump. You know, he talks in a bizarre fashion, and I wouldn't let him babysit my grandkids under any circumstances. <laughs> but, but just as Trump has taken control of the Republican Party, the Republican Party has taken control of Trump. And all of Trump's main achievements, cutting taxes, deregulating business, boosting the military, supporting appointing orthodox Supreme Court conservatives are central Republican orthodoxy. Um, whether it had been Trump or Clinton, whoever was president was going to challenge China. So far from Trump being a grotesque aberration, which a remorseful US electorate was going to, you know, repudiate at the first opportunity, there was no blue wave. You got a swing, it appears. I mean, the swing might be a bit bigger when we get all the California results. You got a swing in the House, which is absolutely normal for a first presidential midterm. Nothing like the swing against them that uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton suffered in their first term um, midterms. You got an increase in the Senate. Now, there are all kinds of mathematical reasons why it was favourable for the Republicans. Nonetheless, that's an incredible result. And the very stuff, I would think, of Trump's fondest dreams the chief Democrat spokesperson for the next two years is Nancy Pelosi. I mean, was this Christmas for Trump or what? Yeah, just pass it along. Now, April, having said all that, the reality is the Democrats have won the House representatives. This is a victory. So surely uh, this is, to some extent, a repudiation of the Trump agenda. Your response? I think it was already expected. We'd, we would have been surprised if the Republicans had held both houses or lost both houses, but I think most people were expecting this kind of a result. The pollsters got it right for once. And if Trump could only hold one house, the Senate is the more important house. Senators sit for six years. They're the ones who confirm all of the important things that Trump is trying to get through. And so if he wants to continue to appoint new cabinet members, appoint more conservative judges, maybe even another Supreme Court justice, and um, ambassadors, 
the, the U.S. nominee for ambassador to Australia has been announced yesterday. If he wants to see all that move through, then holding the Senate was essential, and that was very important. We saw the markets dip a little bit, but they bounced right back up. The um, Wall Street investors were backing Democrats this year for the first time since Dodd-Frank in 2008. We saw a lot of money going to the Democratic side, either because it was assumed that they would win some seats or they would be the ones investigating these businesses come day after election day. But whatever the reason, everybody was expecting them to, to win those seats. So I think it's as expected and to to a certain degree, President Trump will claim victory for it. Yeah. Bob, uh, April mentions the uh, the Democrats outspending the Republicans. That is true. They also outspent the Trump campaign in 2016. But there was, I mean, if you go back a few months ago, the overwhelming conventional wisdom was that the Democrats would have a route, and not dissimilar to the Republican routes in 94 when Bill Clinton's Democrats lost something like 53 seats in the House, or 2010 when Barack Obama's Democrats lost something like 63 seats. Uh, there was the Mueller probe. Uh, they were indicting uh, some of the, the former Trump advisers uh, for alleged collusion with the Russians, or that, that investigation at least. Um, how do you account for the fact that the Democrats didn't do as well as they had hoped a few weeks ago, a few weeks and months ago? Yeah, well, well, just to confirm, your, but by the way, the key to Trump is this: he's a genius without talent. <laughs> to deal with the first part of the paradox, no talent. Um, two things. It's not too hard when there's a national tragedy to get up and express sympathy. You have no shortage of speechwriters vying to be as good as Peggy Noonan or Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in the White House. They can give you a speech that says the right thing about a tragedy in a synagogue that unites the country. So talentless about these basic political requirements he can't say anything about the shooting without entering an argument about whether they should have had, have had a security guard to, ready on hand to have shot dead the shooter. Talentless. One second example that clinches the point. With all the controversy about his links with Russia, he walks into his summit with Vladimir Putin. Wouldn't you think he or someone on his staff would have scripted him so that he could have stood up at the press conference after the summit and said, I just want to make it very clear to my fellow Americans and indeed to all the world, that the first thing I raised with the Russian president was my concern at foreign interference confirmed by half dozen American intelligence agencies in our 2016 election. Let me make it very clear as president that every improvement in our relationship with the Russian Federation depends on that never being repeated. Basic, basic requirement for exercising the job as president. He couldn't see that. My point is, he lacks basic talent for this job, for this post. But on the other hand, he is a genius. He has remade the Republican Party in a way that only great presidents have remade their own parties in the past. Reagan, even more Franklin Roosevelt. So effective as a genius recaster of the political system in the US, that he's forcing huge changes in the Democratic Party. Very likely, but the evidence is still mixed, forcing it to the left. This genius without talent, I agree with Greg, I agree with April, has had quite a normal outcome for a midterm. You look at Clinton in 1994, down 52, a loss of 52, and Obama down a staggering 63. In both those elections, the opposition party uh, took both chambers, mm. took both chambers 
in 94 and in 2010. So this is quite satisfactory for Trump. It, it's compatible with his status as a remaker, a recaster of the political system, the, the first successful populist, the first, first populist to take the White House since, since 1828. But it's certainly not a good result for America. Yeah, on that note, Greg, do you think, I mean, following on from Bob's point about Trump remaking the Republican Party, it is probably fair to say, especially in light of these results, that the GOP is the party of Trump. Um, would Ronald Reagan be aghast at Trump's protectionism and nativism? Well, um, I'm, I must say, I, I totally agreed with Bob about uh, the uh, lack of presidential leadership in response to the synagogue uh, atrocity the bizarre comments Trump makes about Russia. But, you know, I sort of made a spectacular fool of myself by going on the front page of the paper at the presidential <laughs> election saying, Trump cannot win! And my only... Take it to the bank. Take it to the bank! <laughs> so never accept a journalist's financial advice. <laughs> my only redeeming quality is that the next day I went back on the front page and say, well, boy, did I get that wrong. And... Uh, I had a conversation with my editor-in-chief at the time saying, you know, Paul, I'm now of more commercial value to you because I took such a strong and memorable and wrong position. <laughs> to which he replied, I fully uh, take on board the irony of that remark, which was not exactly what I wanted him to say. But so, so don't be guided by me on Trump. But uh, two, I'll just make two very specific observations. First of all, uh, I think this, the degree to which Trump is remaking politics is a bit overstated, not, not least by me. I'm a journalist. It's our job to take every trend to its illogical conclusion. Um, America is still really a majority Democrat country. There's a kind of structural gerrymander in favour of Republicans because in a federal system, small states get as many senators as big states. So California, with whatever its population is, 600 million people or something, I could be exaggerating... <laughs> gets six senators, and Wyoming, with three people and a sheep and a goat and a moose, gets six senators, just the same. And the Electoral College, two, two, sorry, two, two, yeah, every, that's right, two every three, yeah, two senators. So the Electoral College is partly based on that, so that helps Republicans in the presidential race, but it also helps them massively in the Senate race. And then in reaction to Obama, they won a lot of state houses and then they ruthlessly gerrymandered the congressional districts. Democrats do it too, but Republicans had most of the state houses. So it's a tremendous uh, distortion of American politics that state houses can engage in such naked gerrymandering. But all of that disguises the fact that really this is, it's a majority Democrat nation and has been for a long time. The last really clear presidential majority the Republicans won was George H.W. Bush in 1988. I mean, Bush, George W. Bush won with a minority of votes and then a narrow majority in his re-election, and Trump won with a minority of votes. So that's the first thing. He hasn't completely reshaped the American electorate. Secondly, it is a, a common doctrine to say that he's completely reshaped the Republican Party. I don't know that that's true. As I said, all of the things which he can regard as a success are standard Republican policy, even, even the hostility to illegal immigration. This has been Republican orthodoxy now for some time. Now, he doesn't sing any of the songs of recent Republicans. There's no poetry in Trump's song. I accept that absolutely, one million percent. But 
On substance, now, the only thing you can say, really, where he contradicts recent Republican orthodoxy is the tariffs. Mm. But, you know, during the presidential campaign, I wrote a piece about my friend Kurt Campbell and how he was going to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, ratified by Hillary Clinton after the election. And, I, you know, I can reveal this now because Kurt is out of office. Kurt rang me from America the next day and said, look... Please never say anything like that again. Bernie Sanders is using this to, to hurt Hillary Clinton. My little piece in, an, you know, in, a, in a magnificent Australian newspaper <laughs> was hurting Hillary Clinton because there was a soupçon of a suggestion that she might be associated with free trade. Now, the frustration in the US with uh, China's uh, shocking manipulation of the trade rules, it's theft of intellectual property, it's cyber theft, it's intimidation of American firms which invest in China and it's force, uh, forcing them to transfer intellectual property and it's constant industrial espionage on a massive scale. That is bipartisan. It's a new reality. It's not a reality that Ronald Reagan faced. Of course, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush imposed tariffs from time to time too. So I don't quite accept that... Mm. The Republicans were pure, poly pure heart free traders until wicked, ugly Trump came along and turned them into protectionists. Okay. April, you're head of the American Chamber of Commerce. To what extent does Trump's protectionism disturb you and your members? Uh, the US Chamber of Commerce has always been in favor of free trade and, and tariffs are anathema to our business model. But I think that Greg's very, very accurate in saying that this is a new reality for us and Trump is the only one who was going to say what needed to be said and make some progress there with China. He's not afraid to break some eggs and make his omelet and I think he's playing a very very much of a longer game than we realize mm -hmm. in, in what he's doing with the tariffs. Uh, his popularity among miners and agricultural workers, all, all sorts of workers in America is very high yeah. and I think that we're going to see in the next election, this will be a topic. The exit polls today were showing that the economy was third or fourth most important to voters. Insurance, health insurance was number one. Immigration was number two. Trump kept harping on that caravan that's coming up from mm -hmm, Central America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the economy, remember back in 96, it's the economy, stupid. Um, that was not the, yeah, right. the key factor, but I think it will be. It is interesting, and now is as good a time as any is to remind everyone that the unemployment rate right now in the United States is 3.7%. It's the lowest since 50 1969, years. so since man landed on the moon, which is just extraordinary, and the economy is going gagging busters. I think the annual uh, growth rate is about 3.5% average a year under Obama, it was 1.6%. Of course, President Obama had to deal with the aftermath of the financial crisis. But you could argue that the tax cuts and deregulation policies of this administration have helped the booming economy. But um, Bob, on the tariff war, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's hurt Trump politically, at least in those agricultural states, does it? No, there's no evidence of that. Um, again, you could say this is an example of American voters opting not to vote according to their economic interests, but according to other considerations. I disagree completely with Greg about the change in the nature of the Republican Party. I think the Trumpian concept has grown under the umbrella of the Republican Party and transformed it utterly on two big counts. Um, it was a free trade party. Clinton only got NAFTA through with the votes of Republicans in Congress. His own party was protectionist. All their instincts were against what he was doing. It was Republican votes that enabled him to get it up. Free trade was one of the, the key ideological 
commitments that were part of the ethos of republicanism. Now that is gone. It is, it is being transformed into a fiercely protectionist party. Uh, and it's not just China. It's their attitude to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, he ruled it out. It was no, no, no other uh, Republican candidate, to the best of my knowledge, ruled it out. He ruled it out. Uh, Cruz and Rubio weren't making protectionist statements in that campaign, not even about China. Mm. In that sense, Trumpism has overtaken the previous ethos, the previously prevailing ethos of the party. And I do remember the, the pro, the defiantly pro-immigrant sentiments of, uh, of President George Bush. Founded on his experience as governor of Texas, he made it unmistakably clear he favoured a readiness to take migrants. His approach was differentiated from that of Governor Wilson of California, Pete Wilson, who had said did enormous harm to the Republican brand in California by staking out an anti-Hispanic uh, immigration position, uh, something that the Republican Party in that state hasn't recovered from to this day. It's hard to find a Hispanic who'll vote Republican in California. Part of Trump's genius is to see the Republican Party now a party opposed to free trade and opposed to immigration. Moreover, moreover, he's allowed this party to become infected with a sort of white nationalism. In the past, its leaders, not just McCain, not just our hero, our, our sainted John McCain, uh, but in the past, a Bush, so many others, would have flung these notions out the window. He's allowed them to be expressed. You've got a Republican president of the United States of a great party associated with the name of Lincoln and, and even in relatively recent years, strong on matters of race. There are half a dozen examples that can come to mind. A party whose leader hesitated to criticize neo-Nazis neo in Virginia during that uh, disgraceful uh, burst of violence. He couldn't bring himself to disown them. So don't tell me he hasn't changed the Republican Party in the past. They would never have allowed these notions to have gathered force under their umbrella. Yep. Let me get Greg's response to that because they're, they're fighting words. But before we do that, let me preface it by saying, let me, this is an important point, because clearly Trump's America first, nativism, protectionism, it resonated in many states where the Senate races were conducted. But Greg, did it boomerang that message? Did that boomerang in a lot of those Republican, Wentworth-like districts that were Republican, college-educated, independents, they voted Democrat in this election. Were they turned off by Trump's message? I want to make two unequivocal moral arguments for Trump. First, he is great for newspapers. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. All over the world, left or right, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you know, I could write the most scintillating analysis of Thai politics in the history of the human race, and it would get 17 responses on the Australian's blog. If I write, Donald Trump is a duck, it'll get a thousand responses. You know, if I just write Donald Trump and nothing else, there'll be a... So he's great for, the second moral case I want to make for him is, he's a kind of a Rorschach test. You can project onto him anything. And goodness knows, because I'm required to comment on Trump every minute of every day because my life is now dominated in Trump. I, I, I am going to petition the United Nations Human Rights Commission to provide me with Trump-free days. Days when I don't have to... When I, don't, when I was writing my book about God, it was a joy. People would ring me and say, have you heard the latest Trump outrage? And I'd say, 
my mind is in the book of Genesis. Trump, <laughs> Trump can look after himself for a month. I'm not interested. But, I mean, everything Bob says is true. And indeed, when Bob says it, I kind of, I think, yeah, that's, that's pretty true. But on the other hand, um, you know, Trump is a, a sprawling, horrible octopus mess. Everything, everything horrible about him is true. But quite a few good things about him are true as well. Uh, I, I agree the Republicans are more in, in a more tariff phase now than they were, but I don't think that's all down to Trump. Not only that, his bark has been much worse than his bite in all trade cases except China. It's true that he ran away from the TPP, that's true. But Democrats were campaigning a million percent against the TPP and it was very hard for Republicans electorally to hold the line. Um, the you know, tremendous roar about NAFTA and virtually renegotiated it with no substantial change, like he's doing with North Korea. There's not the slightest danger that North Korea is going to denuclearise. Trump went from the brink of war to, to the old, you know, deter and defend. And we're only on the brink of war because of Trump. We're only back at deter and defend. But then I have to try to pull back from that and say, but is the net position much different from it, what it would be if Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush was president, the answer is not much. Mm. I think he's damaged the South Korean alliance a bit, and I'm very unhappy about that. But other than that, I think the net position... Now, on China, he is doing big things on trade. On all the other trade tariffs and so on, you know, it, it's part of the Trump madness, but the final position is not very different. Now, on immigration, it is complex. I'm, I'm a pro-immigration person, absolutely. Western nations are turning against immigration for many, many, many complex reasons. Globalisation, inequality of trade, the record of Muslim immigration, especially in, um, in Western Europe, and the fact that that gets on the TV. Trump is overwhelmingly against illegal immigration, and that has been the Republican position for a long time. But to be against immigration more generally, I agree, is a change. On the other hand, he also says he wants to implement the Australian system of immigration, a point system, a merit-based system. And if you look at the American system of immigration, it is wildly incoherent. There are lotteries and preferential visas and all kinds of weird mechanisms for who gets in. And they think the Australian system, which is basically a merit-based system, with a big refugee component, of course, with a, with a and, and we run typically the biggest per capita income, uh, the biggest per capita immigration program in the world, Trump wants to emulate that. Well, if he did that, that would be a huge improvement on immigration policy. But so has Trump changed the Republican Party or is he responding to changed circumstances? You can argue whatever you like because Trump provides evidence okay, for everything. Okay, but back to my question, April. Uh, April, a uh, mutual friend, Len Harlem, at an event you hosted last week said, don't listen to what he says, look at what he does. And Len's, Len's been saying that since before the election, and he was uh, spot on. I just want to respond to Bob's point yeah. that the, the Republicans are anti-free trade now. I think what Trump and Mnuchin and Secretary Ross would say is they're not opposed to free trade. They're, they're tired of America being taken advantage of in these multi-party treaties. So they're trying to negotiate more bipartisan treaties or, or two-country treaties that will be more favorable to America. Australia is in a very fortunate position with the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement that we signed in 2005. We have an exemption from the steel tariffs. We're enjoying the benefits of free trade with America. And he's trying to, to work to America's advantage to continue that trade, but make America much more attractive to companies that want to invest. We have some investors here in the audience who are probably building factories in America because of the accelerated depreciation and the cut in corporate tax rates. 
and he's he's making it as attractive as he can to people coming in, but he's also continuing the bilateral free trade. Yeah, you know, Bob. On that note, I mean, CIS uh, mm -hmm. has been a leading advocate of free trade for since we started in 1976. But a lot of our members will say to me when I bag Trump's protectionism, doesn't Trump have a point? Because since China's inclusion into the WTO, they've been rorting the system, intellectual property theft and whatnot. How would you respond to those concerns? Well, you listed for negotiations. And America, America is capable of saying to China, you persist with that or you fail to implement the following reforms and we're going to take these retaliatory measures. But does anyone pretend, and, and America can be a whole lot tougher on these things um, without, without signing up to the causes ballet that uh, Pence delivered on October the 4th. I challenge anyone to read that speech, which has widely been interpreted as pronouncing a cold war with China and say one, say one, it's in Australia's interest, because that's what I'm focused on, what is in the interest of this country, what suits the future of this people and its living standards, and not remotely could you argue that a Cold War between the West and China suits Australia. On trade, it certainly doesn't. I mean, we happen to have, let's remind ourselves, some people talk, I heard someone on radio the other day saying, oh, China's rip, rip, ripping us off, or just taking American rhetoric and translating it to our interests. We've got a whopping surplus with China, and it's even higher these days than it was during the resources boom. So our approach is going to be very, very different from that of the US. Uh, goods exports to, the, to China in the last 12 months were at an unprecedented 100 billion. That increased by 10% in the last 12 months, but they're overtaken by services exports, which had increased by 17% in the last 12 months. And it's very interesting that Scott Morrison's government, in its comments on Pence's October 4 speech, and the comments by the Treasurer and by our Foreign Minister, have been not one bit different from what I would be saying mm. as foreign minister. No, not one bit. And if you've overlooked the fact that we've made it delicately clear we're not going along with Pence, just appreciate the fact that we are the same as every other US ally. Four days after the Pence speech, you know what Canada did? Showing how seriously it was going to be uh, talked into a Cold War with China. Canada calmly announced it was allowing Huawei to build its national broadband network in respect to 5G. Now, I don't know what the evidence is about Huawei. I'm open-minded. I haven't seen the ASIO briefings. I've been very careful in my comments on whether Australia should permit Huawei. I simply don't know. I'm agnostic. But Canada made it clear as a US ally, it was not signing up to the notion of a Cold War with China. And meanwhile, the, 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 the Prime Minister of Japan, remember you said when uh, in 2017, uh, when we went through a, a little anti-rhetorical uh, phase of, uh, of anti-China talk in Australia, you said in response to a, a Turnbull speech that not even Abe has gone yeah. this far. Uh, it was quite astute comment. Abe is in Beijing. The significance of this is not that he's caving in to China, not that he hasn't stood firm against China on Japanese interests. Significance is he doesn't contract out Japan's bilateral relationship with China to Washington. Mm. He's going to have a national interest-based Japan-first policy with China that won't give in to China, but won't run it past the White House first. Okay. So it's all very well to praise the heroism 
of Trump's trade war stroke Cold War with China, mm. but just be aware it's gone beyond the position of any other US ally or partner, under partner, I include Singapore and India, whose position on China I've watched carefully, it's gone well beyond any position they're taking, and if you follow what our leaders say, beyond the language they're remotely comfortable okay, with. Okay, well, Greg Sheridan, in the wake of Vice President Pence's October 4 remarks and everything that uh, Bob highlighted, is there a danger that the hawks in Washington could drag us into some sort of tensions with Beijing in the South or East China Sea? Tom, you are determined to make me disagree with Bob. And, <laughs> and I just refuse to do it. I just refuse to do it. Look, obviously our position on China will be a bit different from the United States' position. Obviously we have different interests and so forth. I don't agree that the United States has launched a Cold War on China. I mean, the Cold War is a specific term of art that emerges from history. In the Cold War against the Soviet Union, uh, you know, the United States did not run a $370 billion trade, uh, trade deficit with the Soviet Union every year. It didn't transfer $370 billion worth of its wealth to the Soviet Union every year. It didn't welcome tens of thousands of Soviet students into American universities. Um, I think you're over-dramatising over Pence's speech. Um, Abe is in China. Now, you can take all the opposite lessons out of that. Abe was as tough on China as the Americans. Absolutely. And all those, poly, you know, all those weak sisters in Australia who said, oh, for God's sake, don't offend the Chinese. You've got to suck up to them or they'll be mean to you, blah, blah, blah. Well, Abe didn't suck up to them. And in the end, they were mean to him for a while. Then they saw that didn't work. Now they want to do business with him. The Americans have an immensely complex, dense thicket of relationships with China. Right, even as we speak, the strategic and security dialogue between the United States and China is underway in the United States right now, involving Jim Mattis and Mike Pompeo. I accept absolutely that some of the rhetorical emanations emerging from the Trump administration are very weird and disturbing. And I regard it as a deep negative of the Trump years that you cannot put the same weight and reliance on the word of the president as you used to be able to. But I agree absolutely with the aforementioned and sainted Len Harlan, if that's his name, that it's much more important to look at what Trump does than what he says. He has pulled troops back. He has refused any international military commitment. He's been steadfast in Asia about things that are enormously important to us, freedom of navigation. It is not in our interest for China to acquire all the territory of the South China Sea and build military bases and militarise the South China Sea and be unchallenged. The only power who can challenge them, not military, I don't want the Americans to go to war with China over the South China Sea, but the only power which can run freedom of navigation exercises and therefore assert that this Chinese militarisation and occupation of territory to which the Permanent Court of Arbitration has said they have zero legal claim, the only power that can do that is the United States. Now, I've never argued that we have to mimic everything that the United States does. I don't think it's true to say Abe didn't run his China moves past the United States. I am sure that there was the most intimate uh, consultation between Tokyo and Washington about everything that Abe has done. But, of course, Abe doesn't always do what Washington wants, nor do we. Under Tony Abbott, we joined the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank run by China when the Americans told us not to. Mm. This is routine. 
governments, you know, under the magnificent distinguished foreign minister sitting on this table, sometimes agreed with the Americans, sometimes didn't. There are so many false debates. Agreed. You mostly did, yeah. But, and you but, got but, strong but, but, editorial note, the, endorsement The media the conventional Australia. wisdom, though, The Economist magazine, F, the Financial Times, New York Times, they will all too often argue that Washington has pivoted away from Obama's pivot. How would you respond to that? Well, Obama's pivot really only occurred in the first term. There's a very big distinction between the first Obama term and the second Obama term. The first Obama term, there were big beasts at state and defence. Hillary Clinton was a very good Secretary of State, one reason I supported her in the presidential uh, contest. Robert Gates was a very good Defence Secretary and Kurt Campbell was the author of the pivot, the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific. The pivot looked as though it had some legs in the first Obama administration. Obama having appointed a first-class national security team in the first administration, recoiled in horror and said, I'm never going to do that again, mm. and appointed some of the most inauspicious lightweights ever to occupy those positions in the, American, in the second administration. Ash Carter, a lovely guy, wouldn't make an impression on a soft pillow. Had no clout, <laughs> had no clout or traction in the, in the Obama White House. Obama's press aides had more influence on foreign policy than the Secretary of Defence. So the pivot withered and waned. I was in, let me finish with the last, very last anecdote on this score. I was in January, I had the great pleasure of uh, appearing and performing at the Jaipur Literary Festival. If you've never been to it, you must go to it. It's one of the greatest, uh, greatest things. 800 Indians attended a dialogue, attended a session on Australia-India bilateral relations. Can you believe that? 800 Indians? But I was on one panel with a guy from the New York Times and Raja Mohan, the premier Indian strategic thinker, great, great uh, Indian journalist and strategic thinker. The guy from the New York Times, he gave us the full Trump is the devil performance. You know, Trump is the most shocking challenge to the global order, blah, blah, yakety yak. Everyone in Asia has to join in the righteous jihad against Trump waged by the New York Times and all, <laughs> all right thinking. Raja Mohan said, look, you're waging your civil war in America. This has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with us. We in India are very happy with the Trump administration. He's increased defence expenditure. That's critical for our national security. He's transferred defence technology to us. That's critical for our national security. He supports our ambitions at the United Nations. That's critical for our national security. He's uh, trying to push further the nuclear deal that Bush did with us, and so on and so on and so on. And Roger Mohan, you, you get the same story in Hanoi. Of course, everyone in Australia who says we have to take Asia seriously would never, ever listen to anyone speaking in uh, Jaipur or Hanoi. When they say we have to take Asia seriously, what they mean is we have to read The Guardian and The New York Times. And, okay. uh, now, before we get back to domestic American politics, I just want to follow up with you, Bob, because you'll often hear a lot of uh, foreign policy commentators in this country, most notably <laughs> Professor Hugh White from ANU, the former Labor Prime Minister Paul Keating. They say, on the one hand that the Trump administration is presiding over a foreign policy retreat from Asia. But on the other hand, they fret and wail that Washington might drag us into a containment of China. Which is it? Well, I think, I think they've been right because they've, they, in, the first, in the first phase of the Trump administration, they were right. It looked like, it looked like they weren't even pursuing I think we went for six months without a, a freedom, freedom of navigation, navigation patrol. patrol. Yeah. So it was quite striking. And remember at the, the East Asia Summit, Trump, could, uh, Trump missed a, a meeting or two. Mm -hmm. um, you couldn't say there'd been anyone as conscientious about Asia as Kurt Campbell. Mm -hmm. 
in any of the recesses of the Trump administration. But um, more recently, I think you've seen evidence that would allow a Hugh Wade or a Paul Keating to say, beware here, beware here, um, a Cold War, and it's, it, it's not only me reading the October 4 speech and saying this is more than a trade war, that's been a, a widely applied interpretation, a Cold War can translate into a hot war. You create a different set of expectations and you create an opportunity where a, an error of judgment by one side or the other might produce an unpleasant situation. You hope that there are off-ramps before it comes to conflict. But don't forget this. It was Alexander Downer who said in 2005 that he didn't think ANZUS would apply to a showdown in Taiwan Strait. He said that. He beat, as Greg will be quick to remind me, an inelegant retreat and a rephrasing. Mm. But nonetheless, Washington got the, the message. That was in 2004. 2004. Wash, wash, Washington. Um, <laughs> <coughs> well, well, when I was paying my first trip to China, I said, what about Downer's embarrassment? How do I avoid that? Uh, avoid that? What if I'm asked at my first media conference on Chinese soil whether I thought ANZUS would apply to the Taiwan Strait? And I got a beautiful briefing note from DFAT. It said, if asked this question, say it's a hypothetical question. <laughs> um, and I said, yes, yes, I'll say that's a hypothetical question. If they return to it and say, nonetheless, it is a question, <laughs> will you answer it? What do I say? They said, they said, what you say, Minister, is the ANZUS Treaty is an obligation to consult. So I went armed into the first media conference, beautifully equipped to perform this little pirouette. But unfortunately, none of them asked me. It was a day when I was distracted by other <laughs> okay. things. Like perfectly rehearsed. And th but, but then I think, just as significant, David Johnston, uh, one of the... Um, Tony Abbott's defence minister. One of, one of the dozen defence ministers we've had mm -hmm. um, in the coalition government, um, said when he visited Japan in uh, 2000... And 2014. Yeah, 2014. <laughs> he, was asked whether, he was asked whether ANZUS uh, applied in the East China Sea. And he said, probably not. And there's no fuss at all. He wasn't forced to beat a retreat. America's got the message, Ameri Washington's got the message, that we are capable, I guess I'm agreeing with Greg, that we're capable of making our own interest. And if they hadn't got the message as a result of those, those uh, you know, previous references, East China Sea, Taiwan Strait, they would have by the fact that when three US admirals in the last three years have politely suggested we might like to run freedom of navigation patrols that penetrate the 12 nautical mile radius around indefensible Chinese structures in the South China Sea, the coalition government, under both prime ministers, has politely declined. The most eloquent thing Julie Bishop has ever said, apart from the Melbourne Cup tip <laughs> as, as foreign minister, was in her last month when, when oh, before going into an OSMIN meeting, the annual consultation with American counterparts on American soil, she actually spelled out at some length why Australia wasn't running such patrols. So America is used to the fact that we, like other allies, will run our own pragmatic national interest based Okay, now let's policy. return to domestic politics in America. The Democrats have obviously had a win in the House, as we've agreed, it's not a huge win. Uh, they've gone backwards in the Senate. They haven't done as well at the gubernatorial election races. These are the races for the governor. Where do the Democrats go to now in the course of the next two years? Who are the likely Democrat presidential candidates we should keep an eye on? April. 
Well, I think we have to look to Joe Biden first and foremost. Really? Absolutely. Wow, that's <laughs> intriguing. And now he would be in his late 70s in 2020? He would be 78 years old uh -huh. when sworn into office, but okay. Trump would be 73. Right. So All it's right. the, the decade of the septuagenarians. <laughs> <coughs> we still have a few good years ahead of us. Uh, I think he'd be a very strong contender. I think if he had run last time, it we would have seen a different result. And I think there's a strong call from his party to put his hand up. Um, certainly having Nancy Pelosi in, in office um, is like Christmas for Donald Trump. Anything that goes wrong in the second half of his administration, yeah. he'll have an easy target but there. surely there's some young talent in the Democratic ranks that could be a force. I mean, if you think about the 1990 midterm elections, um, no one even heard of Bill Clinton. Uh, and yet this draft dodging, uh, womanizing, uh, marijuana and, well, he didn't inhale, but smoking, <laughs> uh, governor of a backwater state in Arkansas knocked off a war hero. So can't the circumstances change very quickly in the course of two years? We could see something like that, but you, you think about the big wins, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Um, we're looking these at... these are socialists, essentially. That's, that's what they say, yes. Yeah. Um, but they are pulling, as Bob said, pulling the Democratic Party to the left. They're more extreme because of the voluntary voting system that we have in America. You've mm. got to appeal to these extremes and get the vote out. And so I think these tried and true, just like all the movie producers put out sequels every year, we're going to see sequels of the presidential candidates, possibly um, from Texas or Florida. We'll see some, some exciting well, let's young get people. Well, response to the Democrats. Uh, and before we do that, here's a fun fact. This is Kimberly Strassel in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago. And she says, for all the talk of the year of the woman, it is equally the year of the Democratic veteran. And she says that in battleground after battleground district, Democrats recruited former service members as their candidates, uh, which is a huge shift and a reason some traditionally GOP districts are competitive for Democrats. Interesting, isn't it? It is. Democrats have been doing that for quite some time. Jim Webb, of course, was a famous success mm -hmm. that way. In fact, quite a lot of the centrist Democrats did very well tonight, as well as the left-wing Democrats. I think, in fact, that we may be making the mistake of most generals preparing to fight the last war. One thing that I think Barack Obama and Donald Trump share is that they were complete outsiders. In political terms, neither of them had achieved anything. Um, uh, Obama used to vote present in the Senate to avoid you know, having a voting record, yes or no, on any legislation. He'd only been a senator for three minutes and he became president. And his most important endorsement was Oprah Winfrey. Now, I think there's every chance that we'll get some new Phoenix arise out of the ashes. Um, God help us if it's Joe Biden. He's 112 years old, you know, and um, Trump looks nimble, nimble and disciplined, verbally disciplined <laughs> compared. If you've ever asked Joe Biden a question you're still listening to the answer. You know? <laughs> but, but, but I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden. But look, here's a horror story. Hillary Clinton's chief staff was saying the other day, well, you know, Hillary Clinton won 65 million votes. You know, she's got a lot of support. She's still there. But, but I, my guess, my sort of generic prediction, if you like, is that we get a celebrity, possibly a, a minority community veteran, extremely progressive on a couple of social issues, extremely reactionary on a couple of social issues, with some nonsensical, incomprehensible, unreconcilable economic program, which promises everything to everyone, who has been a stellar success 
on some hitherto unheard of uh, Twitter or Facebook or, or, or WhatsApp kind of social application, you know, teaching bunny rabbits how to uh, um, yeah. be non-discriminatory in their choice of carrot colour or something like this, <laughs> and that this person emerges, emerges, Oprah says no, but we get a celebrity out of left field with all those characteristics. Sheryl Sandberg. The Facebook, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, Bob, uh, what about, I mean, I think it's fair to say the prevailing wisdom in the next few hours will be, you know, a, a Democrat House, a Republican Senate, Republican Trump uh, White House. Um, these are polarising times in the United States. And I want to run a quote by you. Uh, this was in 2014. Robert Gates, who was the Defence Secretary under both Presidents Bush, Jr. and Obama, uh, he said, quote, the greatest national security threat to the United States is the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. Now, he said that well before Trump arrived on the scene. Uh, to what extent is this polarisation, um, partisanship in Washington, to what extent is that a serious foreign policy problem for the United States? I think, I think it's bad for America. I think America faces um, stress testing of its constitutional arrangements. Um, and any friend of America and of American history, anyone fond of American history with a, a whole pageant, has got to be pessimistic about the depth of the hatreds and the extreme utterances that are disfiguring American life. I won't, I won't dwell on that. I think it's self-evident. Um, but you're a student, I, of, I you're a student of history. I mean, you've studied the Civil War very carefully. Are these the most polarising times in the United States? No, you can't say that. You, you can't, can't say that? that. You, you've got to remind yourself of the, uh, the second half of the 1960s, the early 70s, exactly. yeah. to start with. Mm -hmm. uh, riots Vietnam in American and, city, yep, city is a presidential election in 1968 in which there were two assassinations. Um, and um, um, you've got to remind yourself of the, the 1850s. Um, you've... Uh, uh, the, 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 the 1930s were the time when America was, a ru was ruled by someone who was immensely popular but deeply hated. I think Beto O'Rourke is going to draw a lot of support. Now this is the Democrat who ran yeah, against Ted Cruz yeah, in Texas yeah. and nearly beat I, him. Yeah. I, I, I think he could have won if he'd pitched his support to softly committed Republican voters and Republicans who were disillusioned with Trump. I saw him in one debate with Cruz, who I would dearly love to see defeated, in which he struck the most leftist possible position, um, taking, invoking African-American minority interests or Hispanic minority interests in every answer he gave. I couldn't believe that he wasn't tacking towards the centre. But that could mean that he's got a lot of appeal to the democratic base. I think there's something unspoken at work here as well. And that is that the party might want to avoid another woman candidate, lest it be seen as a rematch of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And they might want to avoid a black male candidate. There could be, there could be a tug, unspoken <coughs> and under the surface, in Democratic Party thinking that says it, it's the year for a white male and this guy would have some appeal. Now, you might object, you might object and say, Look, he was a little-known congressman who, two years ago, two years before the presidential election, lost a Senate race. Well, you've just sketched in the CV of Abraham Lincoln, who in 1858 went down to defeat in a Senate yeah. campaign 
but got the attention of his party and was its candidate two years later for president. Okay, now let's get your... Uh, April, yep. Yeah, I would just say, I think we might see a woman on the Republican side. I think Nikki Haley might replace Pence as the vice president. Now, she was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations for the last two years and a former governor of uh, South Carolina. But April, how would you see her replacing Trump? Surely Trump... Replacing Trump. Pence. As, as vice president, right. And O'Rourke has been an amazing fundraiser, absolutely. But right now in America, the data shows that uh, parents are more concerned about their children marrying somebody from a different political party than a different race. It is a deal breaker. And it's also what makes you swipe left or right on Tinder. Um, the, the political bias is so strong, and that's, that's coming more and more through social media. All of the reinforcing media that we're all reading that just agrees with what we think about, it's, it's partly how the media is doing so well, because all of this clickbait is increasing ad revenue, yes. and so we're, <coughs> we're in this chamber of, of agreement. Okay, uh, that, can yeah, I add Greg, one yep. very quickly? Footnote, yep. Tom. You know, some of you may know that my, my, uh, the, the significant other in my life uh, hails ultimately... Uh, historically from the Punjab. So we were for a long time committed Bobby Jindal supporters, but now Nikki Haley, as the successor Punjabi candidate for the American vice presidency, has won our support and we will back and the Australian will endorse <laughs> any <laughs> ticket which contains Nikki Haley or any other suitably qualified Punjabi. Okay, now before we, we turn to questions and answers, I just want to get your thoughts very briefly on the new uh, US ambassador designate. Uh, his name is Arthur B. Culverhouse, Jr. Um, April. A.B. Culverhouse is a well-known figure in Washington, D.C. He was White House counsel. Uh, it was part of the deal that James Baker struck when he was asked to be chief of staff under Reagan. He's very well respected. He's old school Republican. He vetted uh, presidential, vice presidential candidates. He was the one who said Sarah Palin would be a good uh, running mate for John McCain. And he also put Pence on the ticket. Uh, but he's, he knows how Washington operates. He has the ear of the president. And I think he would be um, a very effective ambassador in Australia. Hopefully, the Senate being held by the Republicans would make it easier for his confirmation to go through because we haven't had a senator here in over two years, uh, an ambassador here ambassador, in over two yeah. years. Well, that's right. On that note, Bob, we haven't had an ambassador. It's been vacant for two years. And former Deputy Prime Minister Tim Fisher says the long delay in filling the post shows that, quote, Australia is near the bottom of the list for Trump administration. It's a diplomatic snub. Well, well, I, I can't resist that. I mean, on, on the evidence, it's uh, correct analysis. But I'd, uh, I'd only say that um, having known US ambassadors going back uh, a long way, he will have a very warm welcome. Um, both sides of politics will seize the opportunity to make him feel welcome. Um, he won't have any problem about access. Uh, a US ambassador is warmly regarded and warmly treated here. I, uh, I remember very fondly of all of them, uh, the assemblers. Um, interesting that I'd say the assemblers because the, the husband and wife team were terrific representatives of George Bush's, George H.W. Bush's administration. Mm -hmm. Just splendid, uh, effusive um, uh, political appointees and uh, a political appointee is, uh, suits us perfectly but for the obvious this, reasons. This, Greg, has this vacancy really damaged the relationship between Washington and Canberra? 
Look, Tim Fisher is a great guy, but I mean, he's as silly as a two-bob watch, isn't he, really? I mean, uh, what, what utter nonsense this is. Look, whenever Washington appoints a political appointee, it appoints a terrific uh, State Department officer as the 2IC. And some of the 2ICs, I remember um, the Assembler's 2IC was Gib Lamfer, brilliant, brilliant uh, <laughs> professional. Mike Owens, who was he the 2IC to? Was it Tom Schieffer or was it, um, or was it, uh, or was it McCallum? But anyway, Mike Owens was was the best diplomat you could meet in a in a hundred years search, and the current guy Jim Jim Caruso, that's his name. Yep, Jim Caruso two. is yeah. a fantastic State Department official. Look, you know John Berry was a lovely guy, but we didn't really go downhill when we moved from John Berry to Jim Caruso. You know, it's not as if the relationship has been suffering under the incompetent hands of Jim Caruso after the masterly, deft, brilliant work of, of John Berry. Now, I'm sure this new guy will be fine and all that. I would have appointed... Um, in fact, I, you know, I pay tribute to him. He's going to do... I'm sure he's going to be very good and all that. I think they could have just appointed Jim Caruso to the substantive position. That's what they did in some of the State Department things, and it, it worked great. But the idea that the relationship has been neglected because we've had a brilliant State Department professional, committed, lifelong student and actor of foreign affairs mm. running the show, you know, instead of a friend of the president's, I think is silly. Okay. But nonetheless, this will be a good appointment. Okay, now before we go to Q&A, I want to bring in here uh, James Curran, who's a distinguished professor of history at the University of Sydney. And he, more than anyone I can think of in this country, has studied the relationship between Australia and the United States and diplomatic relations between our two countries. James, what do you make of this exchange? Well, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, I just <laughs> I must be devil's advocate um, in the sense that there has been a lot of hand-wringing and hair-pulling and indeed tantrum-throwing by some of the more, let's say, one-eyed uh, alliance true believers in Canberra who, who have interpreted this as a, as a deliberate <coughs> snub. Um, now... The record still stands. There'd be a lot of Australians who would be saying, Arthur who, about this new appointment, and who would see it very much as a kind of a second 11 type of appointment. So the record still stands that the United States has not sent a serious heavy hitter in terms of in diplomatic or strategic or military terms uh, since Marshall Green came to Australia in the, in the early 1970s. In I think the Whitlam, our, in, the in the Whitlam period, yeah. I think our expectations were really... Um, shot through the roof when Harry Harris was announced. So and is this a sunset posting? Absolutely. I think we were talking about septuagenarians before. <laughs> oh, um, okay. But I, look, I, I agree with everything that, that Greg and April and Bob have said. He'll be warmly welcomed. He'll do a fine job. And yes, for all the tantrum throwing about the lack of an ambassador, the Alliance has prospered uh, in this period. Okay, now it's time for Q&A. And our first question goes to Ray Hood over there on our left. Ray, he's a member of a the Centre for Independent Studies. Thanks. Thank you, Ray. Oh, it's just a general question to the panel. Um, just looking at um, the Republican Party, uh, founded in 1854, as we all know, is the party of anti-slavery, um, liberal and socially and liberal uh, economically, I guess, it, as we all know, it transformed as it took, took over the South and became increasingly more uh, socially conservative. Trump, interest, interestingly, in a lot of his interviews you see in the 80s and 90s, ironically on CNN with um, Larry King, referred to himself as a Rockefeller Republican and uh, a moderate, socially moderate Republican. Do you think 
that Rockefeller Republican is ever going to emerge? Will we see that uh, in the years to come with, with Trump? Um, I mean, after all, he was brought up in Queens. And um, finally, do you think now with the Democrats, what they've got in the House, is it enough? Will they proceed with impeachment? Will they try to Good do question. that? I, didn't mean, I meant to ask that, Ray. Thank you very much. Uh, first, anyone on the Rockefeller Republican? <laughs> Rockefeller, of course, was a moderate Republican, a liberal Republican. Uh, is Trump a Rockefeller? Yeah, I, I, th I thought an interesting, someone made the point in the uh, New York Times in the last couple of days, Trump had the chance of being a really clever populist. He could be a much more formidable political leader than he's proved to be. What if he'd, what, what if he'd done two things? Embarked on a, the big infrastructure program that he and Steve Bannon had originally talked about. And what if he delivered, fought heroically to get at the very least, um, cheaper pharmaceuticals for his working class base? He, he had the potential to be far more cunning and I think have ended up, he could easily have ended up doing the full circle and becoming, probably no one else would have used the term that you've been brilliant enough to lift out of the, uh, the files, a Rockefeller Republican. But remember I described him as a, a genius without talent. Um, many of his instincts are those of a political genius, but I think he lacks the talent to position himself like that. If he were a Rockefeller Republican spending big on infrastructure, Rockefeller was famous for that, we still travel on the highways he laid down across, across the state of New York, um, he'd be doing far better. He'd be, he'd be a more formidable figure than he is now. Okay, what about the question of the Democrats? <coughs> Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, says she's not interested in impeachment unless there's overwhelming evidence. What do we make of that? I think we have to wait to see what the Mueller investigation mm. pulls out. It's very interesting how quiet it went right before the midterms. So there's, there's a chance, although you don't hear a lot of Democrats talking about impeachment right now. So I think the Is chances that are less than 50%. because that would be unpopular 50%. with middle America? I think it would be incredibly unpopular with middle America, yeah. Um, so unless there's a smoking gun somewhere on the collusion side, I don't think we'll see it. And as you remember from Bill Clinton, being impeached doesn't mean the end of your presidency. Yeah, and Greg, your response to that, because that's an important point, because if the House impeaches President Trump on whatever charge they want to file, you still need two-thirds of the Senate to convict, and that seems very unlikely given the Republicans have a pretty strong majority. Greg? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, perhaps when Trump described himself as a Rockefeller Republican, he meant he wanted to be as rich as, as Nelson <laughs> Rockefeller. Um, but, but look, but look that, that is a, an odd bit of evidence for my interpretation, the Republicans have transformed Trump more than Trump has transformed the Republicans because Trump's instincts yeah. were of a kind of, um, I don't mean this in, in sexual morality, but a kind of amoral Manhattan real estate developer, you know, not known for their Trappist severity in, uh, in their approach to, <laughs> to social issues. Uh, but, you know, he ran as a fire-breathing sort of ultra-conservative, although he doesn't like to use the word conservative. Um, I don't think he'll tack that liberal. Uh, and I agree absolutely with Bob, this genius without talent. What a great line that is. Unless you've published it already, Bob. Just watch, <laughs> me, just watch me plagiarise it, just like that. Please, can you leave it to me? I need about two weeks to do a feature article in which I include that. Please don't steal well, it. Well, I'm willing to attribute it to you. But uh, I must say, Bob writes almost as much for The Australian as I do, really. It's, it's outstanding. Okay, come but, on. On message. But... Um, <laughs> What was the question again? Uh, <laughs> Trump and impeachment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me ask a question to agree. Um, here's something where I'm, I'm sticking my neck out. I don't believe Mueller has hit painted. 
I don't believe he's found a viable Russian connection. I'm sick of hearing about that meeting which Trump originally lied about, uh, mm. the meeting where they... Yeah, His son and the... Yeah. A, uh, the adoption issues and... <laughs> that's second-rate stuff. And I'm sure that one of these ne'er-do-well fringe dwellers, uh, what's Stone and uh, mm. a few others... Mm. Uh, the guy, Papadopoulos. Yeah, the guy Ale Alexander... Papadopoulos. Now, had a, a wine with in a, mm. a bar in London. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that any manner of misdeeds connecting with the Russians were perpetrated by those, but they're fringe dwellings. Mm. I don't believe they can make collusion stick. Then if you get into the realm of obstruction, you can virtually inflate anything. But again, here you've got the genius of Trump. Trump can go out and do rallies and just beat this away. <laughs> Any other president would have been in front of a, a CNN camera in the Oval Office, sweat on his brow, trying to explain his way out of it. Trump just does one of these, <laughs> the, 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 these uh, Mussolini-style rallies and walks the other side. Um, again, you know, okay. genius sitting aside the, the, the Greg, yeah. Greg Sheridan, yeah. political talent. Well, look, I, I agree absolutely with Bob's analysis there. I think the Democrats might impeach Trump because they themselves whip themselves into such a frenzy of Trump hatred I mean, I, I was a guy who invested a lot in being anti-Trump, you know, and was willing to believe a lot of bad things about Trump. But their comments from the Democrats and CNN are just ludicrous. This ridiculous former CIA director accuses Trump of treason because Trump has an idiotic press conference with Vladimir Putin. It was an idiotic press conference. It was embarrassing. It was strange. I, I cringed in watching it. It wasn't treason. That's ludicrous. And the more you, the more his opponents wildly overstate his crimes and misdemeanours, the greater is the level of immunity that he builds up. Very interesting poll result. 45% of Americans believe the mainstream media is campaigning against Trump. So I agree with Bob. They're very unlikely to have hit any pay dirt because surely in two years, every if there were really some smoking gun, it would have been revealed by now. But nonetheless, their moral sort of uh, their moral outrage about Trump, the, the shock that they feel that Trump can exist and be a president, may well lead them to impeachment and nothing would be more likely to give Trump a second term than that. Okay, yeah, exactly. April, and then we'll go to one last question. I, April. I think yeah. they'd have to think hard about how many more votes they would lose than gain by going down that road. Just like Hillary Clinton didn't campaign heavily on the woman side of things because she thought it would alienate more voters than she would get. I think they have to think about that because the Kavanaugh hearings certainly galvanized people and there was a big backlash against the Me Too movement. And let's not forget 20 years ago exactly the Democrats, uh, sorry, the Republican impeachment of Bill Clinton actually backfired on the Republicans in both the House and the Senate races. Last question. Yes, sir. Right at the back there. Sorry, I can't see you. Oh, g'day, mate. Yep. Hey. Um, so America and Australia as well have generally been quite soft on the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world being Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, they're driving a horrible civil war in Yemen. They don't take a single refugee despite funding half the wars that caused them. Uh, do you think that that might actually change now? And would it change if the Democrats gain control of the US? Yeah, well, the, uh, the House of Representatives won't make foreign policy. You'll have a very marginal role in this. I am utterly bewildered why American statecraft has veered so far towards the Saudis. 
in the period of the Trump administration. This is a bold overgeneralization, and, and Greg could strangle me for uttering it, but, but under Obama, given the, the multinational deal with Iran, which I defend and support, I think it was a, a, a very commendable example of American statesmanship, it really was America policing a world order, enforcing a norm against nuclear proliferation. Uh, the abandonment of that by Trump and this, this shearing off in the direction of a, a quasi-alliance with the Saudis, instead of, instead of hovering in a, a vaguely neutral position between the, the Shia and the Sunni blocs, is something I think is bad diplomacy. It's not in America's interest. It is version about 45 or 49 of American Middle Eastern policy in the last decade. Um, some of us can remember Condoleezza Rice pronouncing that we're going to be supporting democratization in the Middle East. Well, that lasted about nine months till Hamas won a democratic <laughs> election in the Gaza Strip. So, I mean, we're, 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 we, we now have, far, far from the steady implementation of a... Um, a comprehensible imperial policy. Um, America under Trump has produced this glorious alliance with the Saudi royal house, never properly explained, never enunciated, and now I think in some measure of retreat. It, it's lasted about as long as every other grand strategy for the Middle East we've had from America in I said 20 years earlier, I would say 50 years. Well, well Greg, does the American, do the Americans really need the Saudis given that the Saudis have clearly aided and abetted a lot of these Sunni rebels who've morphed into these Sunni jihadists? I think something like 16 out of the 20 or so um, hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi citizens. And moreover, the shale gas revolution, this wonderful thing, technological innovation means that the United States is on the cusp of being energy independent. So do the Saudis matter that much to Washington anymore? This is uh, a very long way from the midterm elections. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, um, you know, once we get started on the Middle East, the Middle East, <laughs> I must say, like Donald Trump, is very good for newspapers. And, um, look, I'm a critic of the Iran deal, certainly. I'm a very strong critic. I was strongly opposed to it at the time. Um, Obama's Middle East policy was a complete schmozzle. Remember, he, he loved the Arab Spring. He loved and the Bush's Egyptian... Bush's was a schmozzle. Uh, no, no, I may, I'm, I'm going on to endorse your point, Bob, that all American presidents have had rotten Middle East policies. All Middle East powers have had rotten Middle East policies. All European powers <laughs> have had rotten Middle East power, uh, policies. Central America has had a very ineffective Middle East policy. Here is, here is the thing about the Middle East... There is no solution. There is no solution. Now, um, so let's move from what ought to be to what is. I remember once interviewing uh, Tom's friend, John Bolton, and I said, uh, American and Australia share values, don't they? And he said, well, look, that's true. But he said, I'm really an interests guy, not a values guy, you know. And um, let's... Uh, is, you asked a question about what will happen as opposed to what should happen. Will the Americans move away from Saudi Arabia? No, they won't. Uh, do you want to say anything? I, I was just going to say that um, Saudi Arabia is the biggest purchaser of American defense equipment, followed by Australia. And it's a very important mm. relationship. If you're thinking that Donald Trump is a very transactional president, I think that's important to keep in mind. Okay. Well, the Center for Independent Studies is very lucky. We've got a very distinguished board of directors, um, including our next speaker. I'd like to call on uh, James Phillips to do the vote of thanks. James. 
Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Well, um, this evening I thought it was a remarkable event for uh, a few reasons. The first was we had three commentators up here and none of them uttered the phrase, um, it was always going to occur, having not predicted it in advance. So <laughs> that's, that's quite a win, right? Uh, the second was we actually had a, a wonderful substantive discussion about the issues rather than the sort of crazed indignation that has... Um, uh, preoccupied most people when they come to discuss US politics for the last two years. So that's another great win. And the third is um, that the discussion was conducted, as all these discussions should be, with um, mutual respect and courtesy. It's odd that you should have to remark that as something that's uh, unusual, but in our um, society of sort of internal um, civil war on cultural and political issues, that's becoming a rare thing. For, so for all of the above, we really have to thank our outstanding panel this evening because it was down to the quality of their knowledge and the spirit with which they entered into this discussion. So thank you so much, Bob, April and Greg, for a terrific uh, panel discussion. Well, okay. Um, finally, thank, thank you, James, and thank all of you for being here. Uh, it's much appreciated. Thanks to our panellists. Uh, we would not survive if it weren't for the generosity of our members. So if, you, if you're not a member of the CIS, please consider becoming one. Uh, upcoming events, uh, November 20, we're launching, of all things, a biography on the 20th Prime Minister, Bill McMahon. This book is absolutely sensational. The young historian is only in his late 20s, Patrick Mullins. Paul Kelly, the distinguished journalist from The Australian, will launch it here on, the, on uh, November 20. November 22, we're having a big debate on the crisis of democracy all across the Western world. And then later in the month, I think it's uh, November 28, the former High Court Justice Michael Kirby will be launching the memoirs of Geoffrey Lehman, the prominent poet and tax economist. We are a broad church here at CIS. We hope you've enjoyed this evening and we hope to see you again. Thanks so much. <laughs>